Welcome back to Labeled, the stories, rumors, and legends of Tooth & Nail Records. I'm your host, Matt Carter, and today's episode features the not only legendary, but iconic drummer, Steve Kleesath, from Strong Arm, Shy Halud, Further Seems Forever, and The Darling Fire. He's a legend because he had tremendous influence on records that were tremendously influential, and his style inspired tons of people, myself included. Uh, but he's iconic because he comes in a package that's different than you might expect. He plays left-handed on a reverse setup drum kit and plays quirky parts that seem to come from another dimension. This is on top of the fact that Steve has become an expert in many things, including poker, uh, holding world records in video game scores, so he clearly has a special mind that accesses information and makes decisions in a unique way that has had a big impact. Also, let's not forget, Labeled Fest is coming up on September 23rd. We've been doing all these Furnace Fest-related episodes. Uh, this whole thing has been very exciting for the whole community to have Furnace Fest be back. Everything's still rolling along. And we're having Labeled Fest the night before. It's on Furnace Fest Eve, September the 23rd in Birmingham at a club called Saturn. That's Emory, Hopes Fall, As Cities Burn, Terminal, Mike Mains and the Branches with an after-party emo night DJ set from Josh Head. Uh, the tickets are not sold out for that yet, but it's well on its way, so it would probably be a good idea to get tickets sooner than later. And especially, why don't you just use the promo code LABELED and you get 20% off that event. Should be a great time and looking forward to seeing y'all all in person at Furnace Fest, and particularly at Labeled Fest the night before. And there's a link to the tickets in the show episode description. Okay, now listen to these crazy drums for the next minute here. I've never met you, and uh, until just now, I've never even heard you speak, but uh, you are a huge influence on me, so just right out of the gate, I want to say thank, thank you, you because I know your music so well, and what, in, at least in my imagination, is your contribution to that music, and I think that has resonated with a lot of people um, who I think somehow really understand there's some something that you do musically that's really um unique and sticks out so uh without knowing anything about you as a person i do feel like i know you musically in a way which is pretty pretty neat for a drummer yeah it's awesome thanks so much i appreciate that uh yeah i did i mean better late than never to know i guess <laughs> that's cool well, it's cool because I know that I know what your music is like, and I also just know the fact that you hold some video game records and some other stuff like that. So, to me, already, just what I'm interested in here is I, it's obvious to me that you have a very unique mind in the way that you process the world. Um, so, I just kind of before we even get into drumming or influence or the tooth and nail scene. 
hardcore scene, any of that stuff. I'm just kind of curious about what is your mind like? Um, where you know, where do you come from, family wise, and what, like your way that you process the world? Well, it's funny you would say that in a way because people that know me really well have a nickname for me, and that is Bizarro, which would be the opposite. <laughs> So, whereas if, if anybody who knows that comic, you know, Bizarro World is like the tires are square instead of round and everything's kind of like the S is reversed. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think part of that is because I'm a lefty um, where that name kind of got attributed to, uh, at least from the musical portion of the, my life. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I did kind of grow up uh, kind of figuring stuff out on my own, I guess. Very small family. Um, and, uh, I was kind of on my own at a, at a pretty young age. So, um, see, I guess you could say my approach to things, I mean, it's natural for me, but I guess maybe others from an, an outside looking in perspective could maybe use the word unorthodox at times, maybe something like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you have to be a self taught person because you do things you express things in ways that other people just don't and haven't. Um, I'm sure the left-handed part really plays into it. Um, that's a striking, very striking feature uh, because drums are such a thing where everybody plays drums on their steering wheel and everybody does the tom feel this way. Like e- even people that don't know about music are very naturally embedded in drummer's perspective. I feel like it, there's just a, it's just a thing to to imagine yourself as the drummer, and then to see it in mirror image um, is is striking. I think for people. So, well, at the very least, it's a quirk. It's yeah, it it is a quirk. But it seems like you're self taught because the things that come out of your drumming though are just completely bizarro. I mean, they're they're not they're incalculable and unexpected at at almost every turn. So I, I am curious that that extends into other areas of your life beyond drumming and all the way into childhood. Yeah, no, it's funny you say that. It's not necessarily determined or intended to be. I mean, I it just the way I write and and you know in some in a couple of the groups where I been friends and written with the members for years and years. I think they're all equally unique as well. Like for instance, when it comes to further seems forever, strong arm, Josh Colbert is one of the most innovative and creative guitarists that I've ever run across. I've ever collaborated with. And his style is very transitional and just a lot of movement, very fluid. And it kind of is like a perfect compliment to what I do. And that's why I think when, when we came together and, you know, and me assisting him in writing music, it's a, you know, it's a great marriage or great uh, combo from that, from that standpoint. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, again, it's, it's, it's not like I'm intending to approach. I mean, for me, what I come up with or what comes out of me as a vessel is, is just, uh, it's natural. It's not forced per se, but yeah, I, I could definitely see where, um, you know, there's a, some symmetry or there's some maybe a uh, subtle complexities within the framework of something that otherwise is not too far away from straightforward. Mm-hmm. Is it more than just music that's you're that way with? Well, I'm just really carefree, kind of a free spirited guy. I love to do a lot of different things. So I have a lot of different ventures and things I'm interested in or, or uh, uh, things that I've been involved with. I mean, I guess a person who maybe. uh, has a more formatted life of school, college, desk job. I mean, as far as like your, I don't know, typical 
50s lifestyle or a typical uh, order of the way you go about uh, one level to the to the next in your life. It probably is different when it comes to me. Like I've always been kind of, you know, cart before the horse maybe or, or just done things when I've stumbled onto them or things that uh, I have found out or discovered that I have a gift for that I happen to be good at by, for whatever reason. And so, uh, so yeah, the video game thing that, you know, I've always loved games. I've, I'm a big kid. You know, I love games. I love theme parks. I love, uh, you know, uh, fun things that are not, for instance, I play poker. Uh, I did that professionally for a few years. I mean, I, I do things that would not be considered a conventional way to, to make a living or, you know, maybe more of a hobby. I think most people would consider it, but you know, if, if, if you're going to choose to spend time doing things as a hobby, well, why not take it the next step and, and try to make a living off it or try to make a career out of it. And worst case scenario, if you don't reach that level, well, it's still something you love to do anyway. It's always going to be a part of your life in some way, shape or form. So that, as far as the video game thing, like there were just some games that were, I was drawn to when I was younger, dating myself a little bit here, but when there was actually classic arcade cabinets and, convenience stores and arcades and before the home console systems started be, to become prevalent with Nintendo and Sega. And then there was kind of like a renaissance of these classic arcade games in like the early to mid two thousands. There were some documentaries that came out that were kind of uh, glorifying these sub communities of people who are now older that are like still being King competitive on them. Was that like King that, of Yeah, that would, be, that would be one of them um, amongst some other ones. And I kind of just, you know, when I had some time again, I'm like, oh, you know what? I remember some games that, you know, out of curiosity, let me see what the record is for it. And when I, you know, just did some backtracking, I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I know with a little bit of practice or if I were to get back into it as a kind of interesting kind of sub hobby, I could probably beat those records. And so I did with Mario Brothers. I'm, I'm still the world record holder in the uh, classic arcade uh, platform of that game. Wow. And Mario Brothers was the first before super mario brothers yeah i used so, to play it at pizza hut in 1980 yeah. whatever that was it was in pizza hut in one of those games yeah there's a place called mazio's which was a pizza place in like texas i lived in texas for a couple of years not from there but and i remember playing it in the arcade there but that was one of them miss pac-man was another one um donkey kong so a lot of the classics um you know i've achieved well in the case of mario brothers world record in the case of miss pac-man top five in the world and then donkey kong i not too long ago broke the the million point barrier which is always uh <laughs> for donkey kong players uh, a harrowed or a hallowed ground when you when you're able to do that uh so way far away rank drummers like they do tennis players and other stuff i think you can <laughs> so, you be on some numerical list somewhere there i don't you know what i mean i don't know about that maybe <laughs> well but, I mean, you, you put more effort into drumming the video games in your life haven't you not and you have uh -oh, world records in video games so. Historically, yes. Historically, yes. So I think recently that's... not so much because obviously with the circumstances of the times we're living over the last couple of years, it's been slim pickings on that front, as I'm I'm sure you're well aware. Mm -hmm. But as far as being able to perform or, or tour or do any of that kind of stuff, but you know, you still have the the uh, you still have the uh, uh, option to write, of course. So. Yes. Um, it's fascinating that you say that about everything's a hobby or you do these things, but you become hyper competent at them. So you, you have a method of interfacing 
with things that is again it's obviously unique but um and i am i'm going to continue to try to get at how how that is so when you think about music um what does music have what does drumming and music have in common with with a video game in that what is your method to become world class at something well drums i don't necessarily view it like video like video games is more competitive Drums is just something that's a part of who I am or so I found out at a young age. I am self-taught to that point that you mentioned earlier. Uh, from what my parents had told me, they're both passed away now, but, but they had told me when I was four years old, they had taken me to a friend's house. There was the drum set set up. And, so, and I don't even remember this. It's, you know, I can't really remember much from that age. But according to them, they told me I just got up and started naturally playing and everybody freaked out like, has he played drums before? It's like one of those things. And then from there, you know, that was kind of like the first spark of blossoming my interest towards uh, a drum kit. And then from there, I, I just get to the point where I, I am very ambitious. I definitely want, you know, when, when I know I want to accomplish something, I'm very kind of, you know, everything and anything it takes. One track mind at to, that point. Yeah, to get better at it. Um, because the drums is a little bit different because uh, it's, it's a little more effortless for me for some reason. Um, whereas other things I take up, there is also a natural ability, but it takes a little more of some extra processes to kind of get to where I'm going. Mm -hmm. Whereas with drums, it's just always kind of come naturally for me. Uh, just playing, you know, just playing drums. So. so your first love of drumming at that point was probably just the kinetic part of playing it and making noise and stuff like that. You didn't have deep hardcore or emo feelings to express or anything like that. When did it come? When did you come into that thing that because you got there extremely early in the history of this powerful emotional music um, self you know DIY spirit filled or whatever i don't even know if it's religious or how you think of the spiritual element of that but that thing where when you're making that music that you're making in the mid 90s at least um it's already full of passion basically so how when when is that a passion attached to playing drums for you well i started taking music more seriously as far as wanting to play with other people probably more in the mid to late 80s actually, because I'm a little bit older, not crazy old, but a little bit older, but in any case, um, and so I was already in a few bands that, uh, just maybe weren't, didn't get to as prominent or as known, but, um, as a matter of fact, the current band that I'm in, uh, which is called the Darling Fire, which I'm super excited for this band, actually, uh, it's, we're going to be tracking uh, a new record soon, but, um, the bassist in this band is my oldest friend. And he's at, he was actually the bassist in the first band I was ever in. So we've known each other for like, you know, 25, 30 years. So, I mean, it's, uh, so he date, he dates back with me to the, the first real band that I would consider that I was in. So, yeah, I already had to your question of the passion or the drive. It was already there prior, prior to, uh, um, the mid nineties when I had, uh, moved down to South Florida to join, uh, Strongarm. Mm -hmm. uh, those are guys I, I had already known um, just through the music scene up in Tampa, Florida. Now, I'm originally from Virginia. So when you want to talk about just the love of listening to music, my passion for music grew fairly early uh, around the time I was just becoming a teenager, uh, just with uh, DC 
uh, around the DC area and then moving to Florida, uh, I was kind of like a chameleon, you know, like, uh, when you're in school, you're, or at least when I was in school, junior high, high school, you had like some people, like it wasn't kind of like everybody hung out with everybody. You kind of had different groups of people. You had jocks, you had burnouts, you had like, you know, more punk people or whatever. And I kind of took something from everything. I hung out with a lot of different people and I was never really part of one particular group. And so hence, I think that kind of accompanies my eclectic taste of music. I'm, I'm very all over the place. I, I'm very, uh, I love a lot of different genres of music, mm-hmm. even though I'm probably known for more of a certain uh, subgenre. I think but, that's um, another clue is that um, the pulling from many sources, uh, it's, it's seemingly random, but there's a method to it because you're pulling stuff from each thing that's of valuable to you that you're going to you know, wind up using. So you or discoveries you know, that yeah. I thought were cool or that were, yeah, that maybe subconsciously influenced me. So when the time came, some of those influences kind of come out of me uh, within the frame of beats and measures, in my case, being a drummer. But, um, uh, but yeah, so I'd already been in some bands. And then, uh, like I said, in uh, 95, I think it was, that's when I uh, was asked to uh, join Strongarm. And like I said, I'd already known the guys pretty well from uh, the music scene up in Tampa because they come up to play there. And I was in that some of these other bands we do like we kind of be on bills for shows. And there was this place called the refuge, which was kind of like a shelter. That was also a church. That was also kind of an outreach kind of thing. And we kind of met each other through events and shows that they put on at the time. And so, uh, yeah, about 95 is when, uh, you know, I got asked to play as when, if we're getting to like tooth and nail salts mm-hmm. or what would become like tooth and nail band. Um, and then I moved down here in 95 and we started, uh, you know, they kind of picked up where they left off with me now drumming. And then ironically, the guy who had been the drummer became the singer. And we felt that lineup of strong arm, which would eventually make or create the advent of miracle. I think everybody had a sense that that's what the lineup should have been. Um, even though there were other lineups of the band prior and, and, a, and an album prior. Yeah, I think you got it right. Yeah. Uh, what a, finding the scene that so you had exposure to the punk scene in DC and that connected you to this and then the hardcore and, and beyond in the Florida like that. And like, all how, kinds how of you, stuff. When I was really young, I loved New Wave, what would be now considered classic rock, mm-hmm. um, metal. Uh, I mean, it, it was all over the place. How did the grunge scene and what had happened from the 80s and 80s metal, you know, when I, I'm thinking about your joining Strong Army like 95, and that's like a year after In Utero came out. Like that <laughs> blows my mind, you know. So how do you get from from that? that I don't know. That, that to me just blows my mind. Well, the band that was in prior to Strong Arm wasn't really – we were, you know, we were would be considered more experimental. We weren't really – necessarily in line with the trends at that point in time which would be grunge uh i mean you know like i said the the roots of grunge in a lot of ways are punk mm-hmm. and there was a lot of classic punk and post-punk especially as well that uh i enjoyed and loved and uh a lot of the bands that were getting popular and that always seems to be the case even with the metal bands you know like when metallica was in their classic phase you know they put out that uh, garage days revisited where they're basically covering bands that they love. 
And some of those bands, the only reason a bigger nucleus of people know about those bands is because they heard Metallica covering it. And that's the same with like the next wave of bands that were kind of considered grunge. Like for instance, Nirvana, obviously the, the like you were saying in utero. Well, their first, well, that the, the album, not their first album, the album Nevermind, they wrote a song called uh, Come As You Are, and they got sued by a band called Killing Joke, who I'm a humongous fan of, a very influential band to me. And they don't sound anything like Nirvana. However, Nirvana had a bass line that was exactly a riff from a Killing Joke song. So they're obviously fans of that band, even though they didn't necessarily sound like them. But anyway, I think Killing Joke wound up winning that lawsuit. And then ironically, Dave Kroll would later go on to drum for Killing Joke on an album, even though technically he got sued by them when he was in Nirvana. Wow, but I didn't know that. Kind of, yeah, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, not to get too much off on a tangent, but it's amazing how some bands who become big or maybe by hook or crook get really trendy or a scene kind of rises from the ashes it's the influences or the roots of that scene are things that maybe the people that caught onto the trend don't realize existed prior. Yes. That's, I mean, I was that way with Nirvana and they'd say, I like velvet underground. I say, well, that's, I'll go check it out. And then I was like, this is crap. I don't get, I like Nirvana, you know? Right, I like, right, right. And so, but they were hearing things in this other music that I wasn't. And then when I tell people later about how good Nirvana is, they're like, I don't like that. I'm like, what are you talking about? How, you couldn't like anything that I do if you don't like that, because that's what I'm trying to, you know, it's that. Right. And, and so w the interpretation of one generation through or, or influence or copying, which gets very, I mean, there's really no b boundary between that and sampling and copying. Um, but that is the process by which, which we take the best stuff from the best stuff from hardcore and put it into post-hardcore for instance which is i think you said post-punk there and i hear a lot of what you do as taking an existing form that's powerful and then doing adding more layers and elements that didn't that were not there in the original forms i think that's kind of um what strong arm and further seems forever really really did was show people you can break way out of the, the boundaries of these forms or genres you can you can go take things to the next level you know, absolutely and it's not even so much, I mean, some of it was just, this is what's coming out of us right now. It's just organic. It's looking back on it. I was thankful that that imagination and uh, was born around that period, like right place at the right time with uh, who we were together with and what we were writing and just what was coming out of us organically as we're jamming. But then, yeah, obviously there's an element of influence from artists that you already love even though we may not necessarily sound like that artist, we're still influenced by them to help what came out of us. Mm -hmm. So big piece of solid state history there and then influence. Cause every time I'm talking to any band later, you know, strong arm comes up. We, we play strong arm clips in this show pretty often because it comes up, it just comes up all the time. So, um, was it, you know, you were early there in the solid state, uh, realm. What what is when you jog back to the '97 advent of a miracle, solid state? Uh, what all comes to your mind about that that scene and the uh, the label itself? Um. Well, we we did some cool tours with some of the other some of our label mates at the time, and we made you know cool friendships and networking, and you know making the the country a little smaller mm -hmm. through touring. Um, I'm trying to think like we. We did tour. We usually toured in the summer. We weren't like a full-time band, really. Um, 
kind of didn't know what we were going to do. We were just, you know, it was all kind of fluid. But, um, you know, I remember we did tours with Overcome and Zayo. And um, um, now I was also in Shiloh at that mm-hmm. time, too. So I was kind of, you know, touring with Strongarm and then doing just regular tours with Shiloh. And then, and then obviously, and then actually we both toured together. So those were some calorie burner tours mm-hmm. <laughs> for me doing two sets a night. But, uh, but yeah, I think it was just the friendships of the other bands that we were label mates with that we got to get to know uh, through the process of touring. And those are the memories I recall really the most is just uh, getting to know people and you know, having some fun, you know, fun times on the road and, and uh, seeing the, uh, that, uh, that subsidiary of label grow as a result, as far as the, the heavier music scene went. Yeah. Living yeah, Sacrifice, yeah. another band, awesome guys. So. Yeah, it's great that all those connections were happening in those networks that were like, there's the tooth and nail and there's the scene, but there's a decentralized element to it where everything's interconnected and there's regional pockets. And that, that landscape was really cool. And, you know, in the pre-internet area, the connections were meaningful and you'd make them and the people that you know in Dallas or in Florida. Um, and that, that whole nurturing part of the scene really laid the tracks and foundations for what could become, you know, a much bigger scene where the bands could be full-time and the label could grow and all that. So. I always think of anybody doing those things in the late 90s and early 2000s as, you know, doing work at the ground level that made the scene possible to grow for the the later generation bands, really. Um, Grassroots, as they say. Oh, I was curious if you have uh, favorite three songs in the Tooth & Nail Solid State catalog or memories attached to music that you, ha- you, you know, that we could feature here um, in, in that way. If, there's, if, if things come to your mind that, um, that you're fans of in the catalog. Yeah, I saw that yesterday and I forgot to kind of think about it more. <laughs> it's okay, one album that is not connected, definitely not with Solid State at all. It would be the polar opposite of uh, style and music. But I really love this album. Uh, it was more earlier Tooth and Nail by a band called Valor. And the album was called False Sounds. And I love that record. Uh, it was on the softer side, obviously, but it was loved. Uh, I think it was Rosie Thomas may have been the singer. Yeah, she wound up being a right. solo artist. Uh, although I don't know if she was on that album, though. It may have been. I think she may have done a, a Valor album after that, but don't quote me on it. But Fall Sounds from Valor, I just remember that was an album I liked a lot that happened to be a, a Tooth and Nail release. That's, That's the first thing that came to my mind, actually, when you when I uh, thought about that question. I mean, otherwise, it's just more of a camaraderie of, you know, bands we toured with. Stretch Armstrong is a band we're, we're really close with. Uh, they put out that, that great album, Rituals of Life, I think. That was on Solid State. That was a cool album. Um, what you did know, you get out of Stretch? What do you think was unique about Stretch that, that was powerful to you? Uh, their energy. They just, they're just amazing live band to catch. Great energy, authentic, genuine dudes. Uh, I still talk with Scott on a, on a pseudo-regular basis. I think he's up in, in uh, New Jersey now. But um, but Chris McC- all of them, they're great guys. And, you know, obviously their name is kind of remotely similar to Strongarm, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But um, but yeah, no, I love the uh, the energy of their uh, live shows, and obviously we'll be seeing them soon at a at Furnace Fest. <clears throat> yes, that's quite exciting. A lot right. of bands will be 
that'll kind of be like a, you know, kind of like a reunion anniversary to, to some extent with uh, a lot of our former, a lot of our uh, former colleagues, I guess I would say. So Stretch Armstrong and Velour, it's Velour 100 actually, right? Yeah, you know what's funny? Brandon always brings them. I think this may be before they they added the 100. It may just be Velour. Oh, you're right. I'm looking at it on Spotify now. Oh, no. It says Velour on the cover and then a little small 100. So it's like de-emphasized or something like that. Weird. And I would imagine that probably got remastered at some point, maybe. It's called False Sounds. Check it out sometime. Yep, I see it right well, here. Yeah, I will feature that. That's it's very great. chill, very relaxed, but it, I don't know, it just had a really cool vibe to it. It, it actually, I loved it in the background when I was doing other stuff, kind of helped me focus and, and think at the time. So just something I came across, that, that album. That's great. Yeah. One more. What? One more. Go blank mind and see what pops in. One more. As far as just within the confines of Tooth and & Nail and Salt? Yeah, okay. something that... Brings back in association to the nail, solid state. Uh, Slick Shoes had an early album I liked a lot. Kind of had like a Shades Apart kind of Descendants type vibe that I thought was good punk wise. I forgot what the name of the album was called. It may have even been their first one. Probably the first one. Their first one was called, uh, I think it was just self titled. They had one like called in 97 called Rusty, and then 98 was Burnout. With the blue flames on it? Yeah, it was the one before that one. Rusty was in 97. Okay. It was the name of that. Yeah, uh, there's something from Slick Shoes I remember uh, that uh, I just remember it was really tight. Um, you know, good recording at the time. You know, kind of had that melodic punk thing kind of down. That's great, and that's good examples of very diverse tastes that you're getting something unique from in each of those, which is part of Brandon's style. He always feels, people always say, oh, you like the most random things, but they're all very interesting things, you know, that kind of, and that is kind of one of the things that makes the world so unique is the diversity of kind of bands that could be on a build or on a label or whatever. So I, th- I think that's that's part of the... Oh, you know what? I would thing. mention another band, actually, 238. I love 238. Uh, both their yes. records. Uh, I know Chris pretty well historically. I'm, I haven't talked to him in a while now, but um, they toured with us with Further. I think it was like 2003. That was a really cool tour. That was actually Further Seems Forever. Elliot, it's a great band from Kentucky. Awesome. And 238. Yeah. That was a really cool bill. And that was right around the time, I guess, Further was at its height with the How to Start a Fire album. So that was a really exciting tour. I, with a combination of who we were playing with and what was going on uh, around that time with, uh, you know, doing a music video and kind of being at our height as far as uh, the public starting to know about us. So. Yes, that's awesome. Okay, then let's move into, um, and thank you for pulling all those references from your mind. Um, let's talk about song arranging and writing because for for you know drumming can be this technical thing but uh and you i think a lot of people describe your drumming as technical maybe i don't know what word describes you what are you comfortable with as a drummer is it technical drumming or power drumming or you know musical drumming do you have a, a preferred way you look at it like your style of drumming is what style if you had to say 
Yeah, I'm not much for labels, but the closest (laughs) one to what you said would be musical, probably. Yeah, because I think people would say technical, but I'm not inclined to say that. Um, I'm not inclined to say technical or that kind of drumming where it's all about the, you know, a lot of drummers have this athletic thing where it's just about playing and the repetition and the perfection of a thing and and yours is so much more associative and open-ended yeah um it's real it's a creative drumming basically right yeah it's, i feel I'd almost want to say it's melodic like it's come it's it feels improvised which makes people say it sounds technical because it's weird <laughs> yeah. no i feel drums are just as much as the palette of a painter than all the other instruments you know if you're holding the palette i don't think it's just like a Okay, we have the band, and then we have the guy that just keeps the time. You know, I think it's uh, drumming is much more than that, or at least it can be, uh, if you uh, view it that way, or if you set out to write that way. And so, my drumming has always kind of been just a lot of movement, a lot of transition. Uh, I don't know the way I approach what would be what most people would consider a standard chorus or a bridge. Uh, you know, there's a lot of space for um, subtleties to really make something interesting or maybe make something that it's kind of what you think it to be, but it's just a a slightly different approach to it to where it's kind of, it may grab you and you're like, Oh yeah, I want to, I want to go back and check that out again. You know, like that kind of thing. And and if we can accomplish that, then that's great. In my opinion with music, but accomplishing it without it, but getting something out of it. In other words, it doesn't date itself. That's what's so amazing about classic rock, you know, why it's called classic rock. It's like, you know, you can, you know, you have some genres or bands that maybe were called niche bands or maybe they were trendy for that time. And that's exactly what they were. 20 years later, you don't find yourself listening to that particular band. Maybe they're more like a side note of a joke. But when you go to like a classic rock band and then you listen 20 or 30 years later, you're still getting something out of it. It's not, it doesn't date itself. It's, it's kind of like for all times. And that, I guess if there was a mindset to when I set out to accompany the rest of my band and writing music, it's, I want something to where it's, you know, it's organic, it's original. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's, it's something that's not necessarily for a certain period of time. It's like you, you can actually, even though you recorded it one time, it can still evolve. It has some kind of element of evolving and growing in the listener's mind and heart, even wow. in the future. If you can. <laughs> okay, that's that's huge. Let me, let, me, let me get that. You're writing parts that will evolve in the listener's minds in the future. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, I mean, if, okay. you know, if that's being accomplished, and it's all subjective, of course, but that mm-hmm. that's incredible to me, you know, that you can actually yeah. evolve from something that was recorded at a specific point in time. But it still carries on, um, you know, because there's there's that life and that air in it to where we we left the palette kind of a I don't know what the right term is at this point, but we kind of let it out there to be to kind of a not just be completely crystallized into a specific format that gets stamped USDA approved and then shipped out. You know, it's something that is yes. you know more art and more just uh collaborative it breathes it, it moves and then it you know it has a long-lasting effect like so, so do you see the song as a creation that has a recording but the song transcends the recording yeah or, or at least the yeah 
the approach of the song and it, and it can entail everything, you know, good lyrics, the way the lyrics are placed um, is important. And I think that's one thing, especially with further, I'll give credit to all of our singers. We've had, they've, they had a remarkable knack for taking our music that without vocals is definitely more of a palette, if you will, uh, like a painting palette. And somehow they found a way to, to uh, compartmentalize or make it, make it uh, pull it back to make it compatible for other people to digest at times. And I think that that's a great talent of all the singers we've had as far as further was, uh, you know, creating melodies and harmony or choruses that uh, were around some very, some people would consider on the face of it, maybe music that's more on the complex side, but. Um, mm -hmm. but. It's, it's very complex. And then when you listen to it the first time, you feel the energy of it as high energy, smooth, complex, but you don't, you really don't notice the complexity. And then every time you listen to it and start paying attention to the details, there is infinite payoffs in the further down you That's listen. A great way to put it. All the way through, there's intention. And you can keep, you know, the, the hundredth time you're listening to it, trying to focus on the hi-hat pattern or the dynamics in the hi-hat, you know, it's there. And somebody thought about it and it's on purpose. Yeah. It's not just the, you know. And so that, that's, it's well, that, that's, why, that's why I'm giving the singers credit for bringing you to the table, right. so to speak. That's the you're double, like, okay, yeah. this is that's cool, just, great chorus. And then all yes. of a sudden you start kind of investigating the song a little more like, oh, what's going on here? What's this? You know, yeah. it's awesome. And it it's, it's truly magic. It's really inspiring. But and then, because otherwise, what is it? Math rock? Okay. And then it's like, well, who's the best drummer that can play the fat? I mean, that's not what it's chasing, though. It's not about being technical. Isn't That's part of the magic of a context and a bed for the singing to exist on top of as a subject of the piece that's the background of the piece and then there's the subject of the piece which is a vulnerable person pouring his heart out with passion singing a heartfelt thing that is clearly the subject and it's everybody else's job to make that context that they're doing that across uh, and if you can if you can nail both of the i mean you guys really nailed um the archetype of that i think that really just unlocked so many other bands to make attempts to do that same uh, it's not a formula. That's what's beautiful about it. There's no formula to it. You ha it ha It's creativity like through and through. Like, and people, and people get different things out of it. And a good lyricist is the same thing. Even the lyrics are what, you know, people take the lyrics and it may mean something different to them. And it's not necessarily like a, uh, mm -hmm. a, uh, a foregone conclusion. Well, I mean, some, some songs are probably, but I mean, overall, the lyrics are very, I can't think of the term right now. And I was trying to think of it while you were just talking actually, but, uh, you know, they are, they, they identify differently with one person from another, what they get out of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you don't see it as like, there's this recording and the songwriter has the authority and is stamped and approved. That's And when you play the songs live, they're still evolving and changing or you play differently. That I mean, is that part of your approach when you're playing live is if new things come to you, you can access them at that time. Yeah. Like we, I mean, we play the songs for the most part, how you would know them from the record, but there's even, but there are subtleties and improvisations, many ones that do occur mm -hmm. in our live shows sometime that'll come to my mind. And, you know, it's one of those things we'll, we'll maybe talk after the show. I'm like, yeah, I wish I would have done that on the record actually now in hindsight, but mm -hmm. you know, so even still evolving with us as we're playing our own songs, you know, we're still from time to time, we'll 
you know, there's stuff that'll come out of us in the midst of performing. And, you know, maybe we'll look back at each other like, oh, that was cool, you know, something like that. Still sticking to the song for the most part, but having little subtleties and improvisations within the framework when we perform sometimes from time to time. So, so in my view, um, I, I think that the drums are by far the most important thing after the, the lead vocals in a band. I think they're the... You know, if you think of the whole thing, there's the energy of the track and the singing, and then there's, you know, harmonic content. Like, it does matter what the chord functions are, but you could take intense drums that had a vibe, and that's job. the job of that is to motivate the singer, and then the chords are, are whatever. I mean, it could be you could distort piano chord, chord function and just add some energy to something, but it would feel like the song if you had the drum energy for the vocalist to, you know, come on top of that and then you could do a lot of different stuff with guitars and, and bass and piano in my mind that and still have what's really there um so it's uh there's another approaches to this like there's this traditional approach to songwriting that comes from an acoustic guitar and a singer and then the band just kind of plays parts along to support that thing but the type of arranging that you guys do is at, from strong arm to further and and Dar darling fire too honestly Ob sounds like the instrumentalist or even the drummer is often leading song arrangements um or, or dictating what might happen next that uh, other people are responding to as opposed to playing drums along with a section existing section is that the case well before i get into that it's funny you would mention drums and the vocals because uh one of my modern mentors who uh is an engineer i've worked with a couple times now his name is jay robbins most people would know him from jawbox um he actually sings to drums and nothing else or, or he has before like on like uh some of the releases that he did in the past if i remember correctly i, I remember him saying that that's kind of when you had mentioned that that is funny with the, the vocals and the drums because that's how he actually sang was with drums and nothing else uh i forgot which release it was Maybe when I talk to him again, I'll, I'll ask him just out of curiosity. But I remember him saying that a while back, echoing that sentiment. Um, as far as the music, I, I, I'll say usually with Strong Arm and further, um, Josh Colbert would be the catalyst to have. Sometimes it was just a part. Sometimes he'd write, a, he'd have a whole song from beginning to end, and he would usually be the starting point of the music. And then he would usually bring it to me at that point. And we would kind of go over it. And I kind of, I think another nickname I was given was Shape Shifter, kind of shift the shape of it from there. And then everybody would write their, their parts, you know, the guitarist, the other bassist. And then, yeah, the, vo the way we write anyway, the, the music was typically written first and then the vocals after that. But yeah, typically Josh would be the starting point. And then he would usually bring it to me. Like I remember because I li we lived together at his mom's house during uh, the advent of a miracle album. And I remember, yeah, we, me and him would just be writing in his room. Uh, you know, he'd be coming up with some parts and that would, you know, I wouldn't even have to be on a drum set. It just could be my knees or it could just be mentally visualizing what I wanted to do with it and then explaining it to him. And we just had a good, again, a great relationship of understanding where each other was going. And that would actually be the, the beginning point. And then we'd bring that to, to rehearsal and kind of play through it. And then everybody like layers would start kind of coming together as a team to kind of enhance it and then cap it off eventually. So 
Yeah, that's really cool. You say you can play on your knees and visualize it. By visualize it, do you mean visualize the song or visualize yourself hitting the drums? Yeah, visualize the beats and the measures that uh, myself playing and also the song, kind of both. How do you visualize a song? Uh, based on what I've heard so far. But what do you see in your mind? What's the visual? Is oh, it, you no, know, no. I, I, have an, I have an innate sense on where I think it should go. Like where I think uh -huh. a song should go from what I'm initially hearing. And that's what I tried. And Matt Fox is another one, the guitarist for Shia Lou. We used to also go over songs in his bedroom. And he had a nickname. He called it Crazy Me because he'd hear me tapping <laughs> along with what he was playing. And then, you know, sometimes there would come a point where they're like, well, this is what I have to this point, but now we need some kind of, you know, introduction to where we're going next with the song or some kind of bridge or some kind of, you know, entryway or gateway into. And that's usually what I had a good sense of is, well, why don't we try this? And I play guitar a little bit too, actually, but why don't we try this and see where this goes? And then, uh, and then, you know, we kind of go into the next level of uh, the next uh, section of, the, of what would become the song. Yeah, I did. I do usually have some kind of. It's hard to explain. I don't know where I'm. Like, I feel this is where it could go, and then you know, sometimes they agree. Sometimes maybe they're not seeing it or hearing it at first, and it takes getting into practice and being on an actual kit, and then it just kind of starts happening. You know, and it's kind of yeah, it is kind yeah. of cool when it when it comes together that way. So. Because it's it's collabor it's an interactive collaboration really at every level. So even if Josh is bringing it or has the vision for a, a riff or a section or even a whole song, that's not a whole song. It's not a whole arrangement yet. It's a whole framework at best for a song, a skeleton, right? And then you can modify the skeleton, which is how you visualize a song. You know, you can think of it as a, you could actually see it in your mind. You know, the sections or the form or something like no, that. No, I do. I have and all then kinds you can start of developing a language for it. Oh, it's like a route tree. I call it. That's my mm -hmm. term for it. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm thinking about a route tree of the different directions it could go from where it's at so far. And then, mm -hmm. uh, what do you mean by route tree? Like a, a different routes mean, it could take as far as tree? if it's gonna, uh -huh. what what the pace could be, what, what the measures could, what, uh, you know, what kind of vibe it'll turn into. If it's going to turn into more of a, you know, kind of slower, powerful song, or if it's going to be more up-tempo or if it's going to be more, um, you know, not conventional necessarily where the quote unquote chorus or bridges may be. Uh, we may kind of arrange it in a different way that it just it feels better that way at the time. It just feels so. Is it's like you could see uh, if you've seen the Loki uh, TV show. Yeah, the, I like the, the show. The, there's branches off the variant. You can see the you can see like the TVA that there's gonna there's all these possible variants. Yeah, like it's that. gonna be one of the you know. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah. But yeah, no, it's awesome. very uh, you know hands on, very organic and very unique. Um, all these guys are actually unique unique players, uh, and in Josh's case, very unique writer. Um, he's classically trained, but he's, uh, you know, his mindset is just one of those things. We found each other's mindset is very similar to mine and how we approach writing songs. So, or developing songs. Uh, so, um, is it's a collaboration that's interactive versus, a, you know, top down or just, or, it, and it seems like it's, always intuitively guided versus like uh technically composed 
uh, and you're using these different combinations of settings to to like you could be on a drum set all the time, but it sounds like there's something useful about doing it in a quiet, quiet conversational bedroom way and then taking that and getting it in the other room and then trying that out in a live setting like you keep getting these new looks at it from different angles this song that you're visualizing is coming together that's a potential still and you keep getting these different perspectives on it as it evolves some of my favorite things that i've ever been a part of writing didn't occur on a drum set it occurred thinking about it before i even went on a drum set like it was kind of already developing and then it was like okay now i need to convert it onto the drum set and so it's all interactive in the sense that you don't necessarily write like you can write a guitar part or drum part that isn't on its own complete. It's interdependent on what the bass and other guitar or drums are going to be doing. So you like if you sit down to show somebody a guitar part without the rest of the stuff, it's just it's weird notes. Like it doesn't even make sense without the drums doing what it's doing and the bass doing what it's doing on its own. That guitar doesn't make sense or that drum part seems silly or too quirky or something. It like depends. That, but I love that word quirky. Yeah, right. Sometimes there's sense to it. Sometimes it's like obviously it needs everything else to come together to breathe. So yeah, it just all depends. Um, but that's why I always love the freedom with how these particular bands were talking about developed and wrote songs. And it was always a lot of fun um, to uh, to be a part of that experience. So. So the difference in strong arm and further to you, is it really just the vocals? You know, like how else different is it? Um, let me put it another way. What is the song? I wrote down the song. Um, the, there's a, the Council of Perfection on Advent of a Miracle, the third song. Well, if the before the vocals come in, or if you ignore the vocals, I'm starting to hear some tonality there that could remind me of further, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, the music is not that far away from each other. It's more the vocal approach and the, I guess the, uh, well, Strong Arm is more of a, at the time, as far as the kind of band it was, was I guess you could say more ministry oriented. And then obviously it was a little more tailored to a specific genre, which was, you know, with the screaming, of course. Um, was that spirit filled hardcore? Like, I mean, is that how you thought of that connection of strong arm? Like this is like desperate cries out of power and stuff to, you know, spiritual. Was that a layer of that? Well, again, I wasn't, I wasn't an original member of strong arm. So that would probably be a question more for the other guys, the, the original members. But yeah, I think there was a sense of that definitely of, uh, you know, their belief system or their, you know, their faith interacting in a, uh, in a um, aggressive, in an aggressive way, with the kind of music that obviously they were listening to at the time, with that scene of music. Whereas further, it was more of just, hey, we're just a band, we're writing music. You know, we don't exactly know where it's going, but the way that we write, the way that we wrote music in Strong Arm, it didn't change drastically for further. I mean, maybe it's just a, a little less pedal off the metal, but but it definitely had the same kind of elements of how we approached writing. Uh, Were you thinking when strong arm, we need this to sound tough. And with further, you're thinking we need this, this to sound emo. Like I know those, those are really stupid thoughts, but I'm saying, did it, did, is there a different lane? Is there language that you have for the, for, for the, what it's going for when you're for, before you even begin the song, is there something in mind that you're after? Yeah, definitely not those words. Uh, maybe. Yeah. I, I said those to me. I know that was strong arm. Yeah. 
maybe heavy, an element of heavy with further, not again, not really any necessarily classification or label to it. It was just, I mean, I guess more towards rock, but you know, we definitely didn't want to be pigeonholed into a specific subgenre with, uh, even though we, you know, in ways, I guess we kind of were early on, but with uh, further seems forever, like we never consider ourselves a quote unquote, any of those words kind of man. Yeah. You don't like emo as a, as a label. No, I mean, we, we didn't yeah. consider ourselves that we, and as, what's funny is I guess bands that were considered that word at the time, we didn't think we sounded anything like them really. I mean, we thought we just, just kind of had our, our own thing going on, uh, like what we were doing. But again, of course, then we, with our singer, Chris, obviously he became the, you know, with his solo stuff with dashboard, he became kind of like the, uh, at least in in other people's eyes, he became the land the uh, the trademark of that word. That's right, right, yeah. So it's like it's reverse association to you and strong arm and that overlap. And then when you take him away from you and go to the acoustic, that's just a marvelous concentration of like talent and expressiveness. You know, if you just take that, if you go strong arm in the '90s to further, and then what dashboard becomes, they're so far apart, yeah. but they're to most of us, it's all one somehow one blurry thing yeah. i mean it's, it's kind of a beautiful um scenario yeah right and chris didn't yeah. view it that way either i mean he was doing his own yeah. thing you know dashboard was just an, another extension of himself as a singer and a songwriter and it happened to catch fire at the right time and then people started labeling it you know but it was what was coming out of him at the time you know and that's obvious because I was watching that video. I don't know if you saw it, the one I sent you, but it's from you guys playing in 2000 in South Dakota at a church <laughs> for 38 people. And it, it's just the camera they used to record sermons from the balcony, obviously. And it's like the most normal 2000s show environment where there's hardly anybody there. Nobody knows anything. And it's you guys playing songs from the moon is down, nailing it. I mean, the audio is terrible and stuff. And it's just like so crazy. And there's Chris has to tell the people to come up to the front and just they're not even that excited about it. And, uh, you know, three quarters of the way through the set, he plays a dashboard song and it fits right in. It makes total sense. It's just like very unassuming, but it's this powerful thing, you know, thing happening. I just think that's a great I was glad somebody posted that video. So I recommend checking it out. But, you know, it, it makes total sense, you know, when you well, see there, it. There's a horrible yet very funny story to that particular show you're, you're talking about. Oh, that me. show was supposed to be another show, I think. And that got canceled. And it was like kind of a last minute thing. Well, the only place we could hold it is in a church. And I remember like the promoter saying the pews are still, we're not taking the pews out. And he goes, <laughs> I, I don't know if we can even expect anybody because it's so last minute. And I remember we were on tour with a band called legends of rodeo. Uh, they're actually, they were recess theory. They were on the split EP that we did with take mm -hmm. but they had changed their name to legends of rodeo and we were on tour with them. And I do remember because, you know, we had drove a long way. We were like, you know, the promoter was like, well, you know, there's, you know, here, here's the deal. It's probably not the best situation, you know, probably got nothing to offer you kind of thing. And I, I think I remember that me and the drummer for legends, <laughs> this is terrible, but at the time it's kind of funny in hindsight. I remember we called the police department trying to get our own show canceled because of a, oh. <laughs> because of a noise ordinance or something. And we made up, you know, there's a noise ordinance. There's a lot of noise going on at this church. And, you know, there's a noise ordinance in this town. And, you know, we want this thing. So like, I think we tried to call the cops to get our own show stopped. 
Moral <laughs> of the story. Such a story. That's hilarious. It didn't work. I don't no, guess. yeah, we wound up playing it, but that was like, and I'm like, I can't even believe in hindsight, like we actually did that. But it was well, it's powerful because I mean, you can see that you got a really clear view of your drumming um, in, in in the video, which I think is neat. Um, even though the audio is not great, uh, of course, but you're hearing those songs played. Uh, and it's not the most passionate performance, obviously, for whatever reasons. You could imagine how it could be in a better club with a better environment. But you still really get a good picture of it. And you're hearing you guys play that music and Chris play that dashboard stuff that's going to be so powerful. And people can't get near the stage or get a ticket to it in a couple of years from then. It's this big, big, big breakthrough thing. And this is just before that. And it's just, you know, it's just quite unassuming and it's just i think it's a beautiful the video that's funny how life works with that what about the label post hardcore though i mean the, the label post stuff like i said before it's it seems like you're taking things and taking them back. does that fit as a label for you or it's strictly no labels or rock only for you yeah like i said I'm, i've never been a very labelish kind of guy i mean if people want to call it that that's fine i got no problem with it i definitely see the validity in that abbreviation acronym, whatever, but you know, it's just, just music to me. It's just, this is what's coming out of us. And, you know, if you like it, great. If you get something out of it. Awesome. And if not, uh, you know, it, it winds up being something we were happy to, to, to put out there in the universe, you know? <laughs> so, <That's awesome. clears throat> That's great. I got some questions from people in the Facebook group okay. and comments from them, too, that I think are kind of uh, uh, useful or reflective of what we're talking about. They said one person said that the drums are so deceptive, deceptively complex. They seem straightforward until you play them, uh, especially in strong arm, um, advent of a miracle. And they, this is the question I had, too, is did the drums you know, the, the drive the structures of the songs or vice versa? And I asked that a little bit, but I'm asking more broadly – the song structures themselves are very bizarre, you know, like the what repeats and what doesn't. I think that the the post hardcore bands, for instance, drawing from you guys, were getting the message that oh, it doesn't have to be a chorus, doesn't have to be another chorus. It can go somewhere left turn. The tempo can change in the middle of the song, and I, I'm curious what how that uh, unfolded in, in your arrangements for further and for anything, you know. Yeah, I would song say forms is the. I would say to that question, I would, I would change the word to enhancement. I think what, uh, what I've been good at is enhancing what's initially there or pushing it to its limit of what it could be. And um, I would probably go with that. What, what was the rest of the question again? I forgot. Well, it's just the structures of the song, the like the non-repetitive structures right. of the song really stand out. That's not a guitar player thing necessarily or a singer-songwriter thing. It's the, it's the band is coming up with and maybe in the rehearsal room or how, you know, the odd structures of the song, the ABA, yeah, you know, it's, it, first chorus bridge. Some of it, too, is there's certain timings that I feel are just as powerful as what most people perceive four on the floor or just straight-ahead timings are, like, I love waltz type timings. And that also derives from some earlier groups that I'm influenced by who use like six, eight or three, four timings where you can really make those timings very powerful. Uh, just as powerful as just kind of doing a straight ahead four on the floor type beat. And so I think with those kind of timings, they're not as conventional to people historically, maybe. And so it kind of comes off from a different like, oh, you know, I, 
not used to it kind of going like this or whatever. And maybe it takes people time to catch up to timings that are not typically presented within the genre of rock, let's say, uh, that may be more suited historically to jazz or classical, but they're so powerful if you can uh, incorporate them into uh, amplified uh, format. Absolutely. A six eight is magical feeling. It's, you know, it gives you a first half of a measure and a second half of a measure more than a measure of four can give you is what I, and there's more space in yeah. it. So it's, it's like part of the evolution of going to these bigger, more spacious open <clears throat> things you can get in the, in the six, I think. And you guys very much uh, unlock that for a lot of people to, you gave people to pull it off so powerfully. You just give so many more people permission to start there and play with that and try those and uh, you know do different time signatures and forms. So I think that's been a big contribution that uh, you know coming from you and Josh and the rest of your band. But you know I, I and I'd love to talk to Josh too now that I'm having this conversation yeah, because he's great. you know sounds like it'd be a good one talking about guitar and other um, other it. angles on the same convo would be great. Yep. <clears throat> Um, do you have uh, actual drum influences uh, that are very, very strong or clear? Somebody asked if was William Goldsmith from Sunny Day was influence of yours in the sense, um, but just more contemporary than anything. But he had a, a powerful style, I think, that was pretty expressive in that in a similar time period. Yeah, William's great. Obviously, Sunny Day was a great band. Uh, my influences probably steer a little more yesteryear. Uh, obviously, John Bonham, when it comes to rock, is the perfect drummer. He is the perfect, and I mean perfect, balance of power and finesse and authenticity. And he's just, you know, unbelievable what could happen if he you know, lived longer. But I mean, so in the rock vein, John Bonham would be one of my influences for sure. Um, and then with jazz, there's, there's a couple different guys I love for their improvisational skills. Like a Jack, who's that? Uh, Jack DeJohnette, Jeff Tane Watts, um, off the top of my head, are just like just extremely creative, and and obviously the the uh, the energy of improvisation. Um, and then, do you, uh, do you play jazz? No, I'm more. I, I love jazz. I love listening to jazz, and I definitely incorporate the fringe of tempos and and kind of the the uh, kind of the uh, spirit of that. Uh, our other guitarist, Derek Cordova, for who was the How to Start a Fire and Hide Nothing guitarist, um, along with Josh, he is like a jazz. He teaches jazz. He's a big jazz guy, and uh, he's an amazing player as well. And uh, I think we may have even done a set together before. Maybe been a like a like a paid gig doing James Brown songs or something, which is more like soul stuff, like some years back, uh, just like on a whim. But uh, but yeah, he's more uh, fundamentally trained and uh, and playing wise steers towards jazz more than I would say I would overall. But I definitely love the influence of it. And exactly those improvisational elements uh, can be incorporated again, just like the timings or measures. Uh, so interestingly, in the realm of rock, I feel so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard you put a little swing in there too. Yeah, yeah, no, I love swing. Uh, I love rockabilly, like old old country, if you will. Um, it's all like really cool stuff that you know you can flash here and there and, and uh, incorporate when when the time is right or the, the the section is right maybe for it. It's it seems like it's almost could have been a frustrating 
career or set of circumstances, not necessarily been a smooth or even ride across time, but yet you've been engaged with this this musical act further still across a really long period of time. I mean, what a bizarre ride that must have been. And how has that interfaced with you making a living in a career and the identity of all that for you? There's definitely not a career situation at this point. I would like the Darling Fire to potentially be, though, because I really believe in this band. Uh, I cannot wait to track. I'll actually be going into the studio for the first time in a while, um, August 28th, for about a week to track uh, five songs, like kind of half of a new album with the Darling Fire that will come out next year on uh, Iodine Records, which is kind of a label that's resurrected themselves from uh, prominence when they were kind of more in that early 2000s time frame. But um, so my focus musically is more with the Darling Fire now. Further is more of like, Further is always just, especially with the Moon is Down lineup, it's just, you know, it kind of organically happens. Like, for instance, we were de- defunct for a while, and then we kind of all, hey, what's been going on in our lives? Let's get together and hang out again and start shooting the shit. And then that turned into... You know, hey, let's let's play around with some tunes, and then eventually Penny Black happened. You know that the kind of comeback record mm-hmm. with Chris. So further, it's always like you know, like for instance, we have we had some plans for reissuing. It's the 20 year anniversary of The Moon's Down uh, this year. Um, I know there's some talk about reissuing it, maybe doing like a bundle where we add some different, you know, you know, old photography. I don't know, just different elements and reissue it for the stake of the anniversary that may be happening, I think later this year, or, or maybe even next year because of the, everything's kind of backlogged because of COVID. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, further, the, the focus was definitely career oriented for a period of time. The, the frustration for me, this is just me personally was, and it's just hard in general, you would know too, I'm sure just when you have a group of four or five people, the motivation levels just always vary. It's hard to get five right. people on the same page for a certain period of time that's kind of needed, I feel, to make it to the next level. Like you have to make yourself available for anything and everything that's beneficial from a touring perspective and even a timely recording perspective. And overall, we never really operated that way. It was more like, you know, there are opportunities. You know, if everybody had the same motivation and availability at the time, we would follow through and actually do it. But then there's a lot of great opportunities that we weren't able to take advantage of because, you know, the motivation of one or a few others maybe just wasn't there at the time. And there was no right or wrong to that necessarily. You know, guys had families and kids and, you know, they had bigger priorities than, than the band. You know, for me, like I said, I'm more like once I see uh, uh, a mission or a, uh, or a uh, objective or kind of light at the end of a tunnel, I want to just stick with it relentlessly consistently so i say until we get to that spot where i can say you know what all the stones run turn no regrets i i can clear conscience i did everything i could for this band project entity and you know we did everything we could and this is what happened with it i'm thankful for it and it's awesome that we were able to influence people with it but from the career aspect you really kind of gotta when you're doing music if you're in a period of time where the timing is meeting with the opportunity, whether it be a booking agent or a manager or a label or a, or a deal or whatever, like, you, you know, you got to just, 
you know, what's the what's the greater good of the band if we actually want to do this at a level where we can support ourselves and our families? It's going to take effort. It's going to take work. And there were just a lot of lulls, lulls within the history of the band where mm-hmm. I don't think we took full advantage of the opportunities that were offered to us. But that's the way I see it. I mean, yeah. somebody somebody else in the band may, may tell you just the opposite. Like, I probably did more than I wanted to. I mean, I, I don't know. But in my case, what? we could have done so much more. And for whatever reason, right or wrong, we didn't at certain times. But in saying that, you know, we're still doing stuff now. We're at the fire lineup. We'll be playing Furnace Fest, which is great. Um, I personally would have liked Strong Arm to play it, but it just wasn't in the cards for for everybody to be available and, and be able to be ready uh, in, in what their situations are right now. So, you know, but, you know, if it's up to me, as the saying goes, but it's not up to me, it's the team. <laughs> it's five individuals working as a team to accomplish something. And sometimes it's just the motivation level is just not going to match. And it can create frustration if you're one of the people on the side of the fence that wants to do, wants to get out there and, and, uh, and, uh, spread your wings. But yeah, yeah. You could see that, um, a part of, of, uh, the story. I think people see that story that way. That it's kind of frustrating or you could have done more or unfortunate this and that type of thing, of course, from Chris leaving to Jason and some drama. And then John's so terrific. And we're also sorry he's gone. I mean, that that's just, just the, those three singers alone and what comes with them all so wonderful to, I mean, it's it's a, it's a really amazing set of circumstances, but particularly for uh, for me, like I said, you've been a big influence on me and the whole band um, and the transitional writing style and everything. So we got our first tour. It was uh, the first tour that we ever got was this really great, huge, big tour called the Tooth and Nail Tour, where Further Seems Forever is headlining and we're the opener. And it starts in Fort Lauderdale, Florida in 2004, the week our record comes out. So it's great for us. And to, but on the way there, we found out Further Seems Forever, in fact, is not on the tour, you know, and Derek came to that show and I met Derek and he told us how sorry he was and you were going through all this stuff and the tour turned out great. Uh, we thought it was just going to be canceled. And we'd have to drive all the way home, but it was me without you and Amber Lynn and Watashiwa were on it and it, it, it was just the best opportunity ever. I would have um, loved to have done it. Was it. Like, I, <laughs> but I thought it was with, you know, the, this band, this this legendary band that's really sparked this whole thing and got all this going. So I, that was a missed opportunity and it would have been an unbelievable tour for you, for, for you guys. It would have been, you know, I, I know there would have been a lot of money lost, at, for instance, there. And that must have been, you know, really difficult, especially if you're on the side of having the motivation, um, like I'm hearing from you and wanting to go to the next level to yeah. be sidetracked or derailed multiple times for reasons out of your control i think that sounds like it was tough yeah there were some unfortunate situations that happened at the time i was living in tennessee at the time so i probably would have been there because i uh derek was down in south florida yeah you know unfortunately it's all water under the bridge now um you know the members that were kind of in just situations that were that dictated that unfortunately we weren't going to be able to do it um as a matter of fact we had just come back from uh not too long prior to a successful uh, UK run where we actually did a tour with uh, Thursday and Coheed and Cambria. So that was awesome. Um, and then we had been kind of in talks about the next album. And then obviously that tour got brought to our attention. And, uh, you know, again, it's, you know, you, sometimes it's, you know, communication is at a premium. 
you know, and you have to have it with every member of the band. And if somebody feels like they're left out or they're not being heard, um, you know, you, it, you know, as far as my RN, you got to be cognizant of, of that or maybe make sure that everyone is feeling represented and heard um, in, in making plans and that kind of thing. As, as, as opposed to like telling somebody something after the fact, you know, like just being in that moment, like making sure that, you know, everybody is, knows what's going on, but, but yeah, no, I, uh, trust me. I wanted to play that tour. I remember that it would have been fun, but, uh, wasn't in the cards that time, but I am glad that it wasn't canceled. And I'm glad that the rest of you guys, and obviously Amberlynn, another band that kind of took off from there. Um, so that was great. So I am very happy that, that you guys still got to do that at the time, actually. So, uh, And I'm glad you mentioned it a couple times, and I wasn't going to neglect it either, but Darling Fire is quite exciting to me. You have the 2019 release, and I'm, I didn't know you have another one coming up, but I'm glad to hear that is going to move forward. It has my attention because um, when I'm listening to that, it has the quality that I said earlier, which is that attention to detail wherever you can put your focus you'll find intention um there and uh i didn't realize that it was the singer from rocking horse winter which i love that band i I I was a big fan of that band and then i put two and two together because it was reminding me of that and i was like oh that's a florida thing and you know i you know i I wasn't up on the darling fire until recently but it's it's actually a project of interest and something i would be excited to see you know what comes out of it this new stuff is definitely a evolving from the first album it's definitely kind of a going in, in a slightly different direction but at the same time there's obviously the components and elements of of uh some of the stuff we still like about the first album but yeah it's jolie and geronimo's her husband and they were both in the rocking horse winner geronimo was also in as friends rust he was an original member of that band i think he toured with poison the well uh for a period of time um and then we have a. Uh, yeah, so I've known Jolie and Geronimo for uh, years, just through the South Florida music scene, and they presented this project to me uh, probably in 2018, and they're like, hey, we, can we send you a demo, see what you think, if you think you'd want a drum for this, and then I heard like the first song, I think it was Omaha, that's on the uh, uh, Dark Celebration record, and I was like, oh, I love this. It's like, it's it's a lot darker, but it still retains kind of that melody and Jolie's voice is so pure she's just like mm-hmm. Jolie's just an effortless singer it's like she she'll go in the studio and it's like you know it's every, there's no tweaking anything she's just on it's she just starts on it's, it's so weird with you know of singers I've uh I've uh um just from a distance kind of watch work like over the years mm-hmm. and she has such an effortless kind of vibe but uh yeah, I'm really excited about that. And the engineer we're working with is a guy by the name of Jay Moss. And, uh, you know, he used to be in a band called Defeater, which was like an epitaph epitaph group. But uh, I'm really looking forward to working with him, too. I, I was able to meet him recently. I was up there for another reason uh, in the Boston area. But, but yeah, I'm definitely super excited for this. And, and it'll be sometime next year. We did recently do a uh, cover of a Fugazi song uh a song called reclamation and that's on a fugazi tribute album that will officially come out you can pre-order it now it'll come out in october through uh ripcord records which is a scottish uh label and the proceeds uh, it's for a charity it's for the tribe 
animal sanctuary. And so a uh, really cool cause. And we were honored to be a part of uh, kind of a, an array of bigger artists that uh, contributed their favorite Fugazi tracks. I know Failure is on it. Uh, they do Waiting Room. Nathan Gray from Boy Sets Fire. Um, Joe Matranga. Also, Shilute. A lot, a lot of awesome artists are uh, doing their uh, their tributes to uh, to the great Fugazi, of course. So. Yeah, I really uh, you know appreciate this and getting a tour a little tour of your personality and mind to go with the music has been really nice for me to c- make those connections and you know just test my assumptions from the music to what's really there with Steve. Um, but I think you've been a real you know a very big you know I hear your influence in many many areas, not just my band, but I hear your influence all over the place and in, in multi-generations of 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 that and you know maybe that's something you don't have as much access to see because you don't tend to listen to the bands after you in a in a progression but um from my point of view as an analyst of it i i, I certainly hear the influence everywhere so and i and not and your name comes up just all the time if i'm ever talking to people and we're talking about drums your oh. name's coming up well i'm honored so. thank you so much for having me i appreciate it yeah. Um, what else is in your world, though, with that brain that you're obsessed with? It's not music for the next five, ten years, like what ne- this year. What else is – what are the other things that you have special interest in? I'm curious. Uh, me and a colleague are actually teaming up to hopefully take down a big tournament this year. I love DFS. I know it sounds, again, something else that sounds hilarious on the face of it, but you don't even have to be a football fan necessarily. It's a complete process, psychology it's I'm deep diving into DFS right now. Uh, I've been playing it since 2014 and I've done really well. I kind of consider it a part-time job between September and December during the NFL season, but there is such, it's hard to even explain on the face of it, but it's just a, it's a deep dive of strategy, psychology. Uh, it's, it's very intriguing to me and that's coming up starting in about three and a half, four weeks. Um, other than that, um, I have my own business. It's just a car service, like uh, providing transportation, and it's automatontransport.com. That's the website. And I've been operating for about five years now. So uh, that's my own business. Um, I have a you know colleague that drives for me or drives with me. And, uh, you know, we provide training. That's my main job right now as far as, you know, paying the bills job is, uh, you know, providing transportation to the Tri-County area of South Florida, also Central Florida, like the Orlando, Kissimmee areas, and uh, Naples. And uh, I'm proud of this business. Uh, kind of started it from an offshoot of a business that I was an independent contractor for prior. Um, and then I kind of retained the clientele. The, the owner of the prior one unfortunately passed away, but I was able to retain the clientele and then develop a lot of new entities, hotels, uh, clients that uh, – use me on a regular basis now for their transportation back and forth, whether it be business travelers, seasonal people, hotel guests. I kind of cover all that special events, weddings. And so it's fun. I actually like to drive and it's when you're driving, especially if you know, you're going to be in your car for a while. Yeah. Podcasts are great. It's, it's a great time to kind of delve into certain things you're looking that that are maybe sparking your interest that you want to kind of fast track as far as the knowledge and the growth of, and uh, mm-hmm. it's a cool environment to do it in. Wow. And thinking about music, thinking yeah, about beats, right. thinking about parts. You know, sometimes going rewinding, sometimes it will be a beat that I already have that I'm bringing to the table. I guess I didn't say that earlier, 
and they're hearing the beat and then they're riding around. That does happen on occasion mm -hmm. as well. Kind of a little caveat to the to the writing process, but but anyway. Well, Steve, you ma you manage your mind really well, and you have that creative spark, the childlike quality, and it sounds like you're always doing the things on your own terms, self developing, and doing what you like to do, and then. That's your, you know, your life seems to consist of things that you are passionate about, even if it's driving or, you know, now that's a, that's a great quality. I think resonates with a lot of people and inspires people beyond just music. So thank you for being a good example of, and model of that. Knock on wood. We, I try to. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Steve. Take care all. Have a good one.